Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build purpose-driven life and business. We're going to talk about mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can build your purpose-driven life. My name is CK Lin, biomedical engineering PhD from UCLA that turned startup executive, that turned executive coach for founders and entrepreneurs, focused specifically on purpose, mindset, and culture. My next guest, he's a dad, he's a husband, he's an entrepreneur, he's a mindset coach. He's the CEO of Burner Lab, Honey Labs, and Vakes Hale. Um, please welcome Sable Shen. Hey, thank you, CK. And I love the beginning. I usually catch a broadcast like halfway through because they are live, but I love the very beginning of it. I love the way you introduce yourself too. Thank you. You have a really fascinating story. So I want to first just jump right into something that you're deeply passionate about. Share with us the passion that you have about cannabis. Show uh, us the world of cannabis. Because whenever you talk about cannabis, your eyes just lit up, your <laughs> energy shift. And then tell us the origin of this, of this passion for cannabis. Yeah, so um, I'll try to keep it short, but I've... Very early on, I discovered I was allergic to alcohol. So you know, when we were 13, 14, 15 year olds, sneaking beers from our uh, parents' house or refrigerators and drinking beers, like my friends would always get drunk and I would always throw up. And as you can imagine, when you start college and you don't drink, fitting in socially is very difficult. I started consuming cannabis about, I would say, halfway through the year. I went through the first half just going, okay, like I don't drink, no big deal. I don't do any other intoxicants, no big deal either. But about halfway through the year, I was thinking, man, this college experience really isn't like everyone seems to be having a different experience than me because on the weekends, just partying all out and getting drunk and having fun. And finally, I decided to try uh, cannabis. My roommate smoked cannabis every day and he didn't do very well at school. So it really re reaffirmed all of the stereotypes that I knew of stoners growing up. But I think just one weekend, there was like some cute girls in our dorm room as well. And it was just like the pressure built up. And I was like, yeah, I'll smoke. And once I consumed it, I had tried it many times in high school, but usually through the joint format. But I tried it through a bong and I was able to bring all of the medicine deep into my lungs. And when I exhaled, I had this relaxing feeling, one that I really didn't have previously in my life. And slowly like the everything just seemed to melt away in that i was very protective about my image i was the smallest kid growing up in virtually every class and i knew that i was a pretty smart kid so i would always kind of use my mental acumen to try to put myself into some sort of advantageous position whether it was trying to be the smartest guy in the room or trying to explain all these things to people in my dorm room and it was funny after i consumed cannabis and i started talking I was able to actually hear myself from the third person for the very first time and observe myself to my, at least what seemed objectively to my, to me at the time. And I was like, wow, this guy is really annoying. He thinks he's really <laughs> smart. He thinks he's super charming, but he's really just turning everyone off. And for the first time, instead of just being in my head talking, I started looking at everyone's like reactions to what I was saying. And I could see the girls' like eyes just glaze over like they weren't interested in hearing what I was saying. And it made me really self-conscious and much more self-aware. And even though it was like a negative feeling at the time, that level of self-awareness I found to be 
very intoxicating. And I wanted to explore more of, Hey, like that happened the first time. Yeah. It wasn't like the best experience in that I started seeing different areas where I was lacking, like kind of emotional growth, but I still wanted to see all those things. And that's actually what started my relationship with cannabis. And ultimately I knew that the smoke wasn't good for your lungs, but this was back in 1994. And the initial research was starting to show like this was indeed a medicine. And so my curiosity was piqued in that, Hey, I tried something that really expanded my mind. There is quantitative data that is supporting this now, but smoking it really, there was no other medicine that I've ever taken in my life where I had to smoke it. That started just turning the wheels in my head. Hey, if there was a healthier delivery methodology, then maybe we could take two steps forward without taking one step back. So I know that you can go really deep in the realm of how you get the whole thing started. So let's pause for a moment. So you had a hyper reality experience of your higher awareness. You can actually see yourself expressing yourself and at the same time, you're also aware enough where you could say, watch yourself as a third person. So one may say that's an unpleasant experience that's an quote unquote negative experience, as you said earlier, what sustain this curiosity, this, and then that actually grows into this like huge passion that you have for it. I had in high school, one of my mentors, it was actually one of my uncles introduced me to a to like Tony Robbins's first book. So I read Tony Robbins's first book as a junior in high school. And to be quite honest, like I didn't have enough life experience at the time to really understand like the principles that he was talking about. It's like when you're out of your, you're feeling like, oh, what career should I have? Like all those things really didn't make sense to me, but it did start my own kind of curiosity about personal development and just asking myself questions like, okay, you want 12 inch speakers in the trunk of your car. Why do you really want that? Okay. You think it's cool, but is it because you really like playing music that loud? Or is it because you think people will pay attention to you when you're driving like a car that has a lot of bass coming out of it. And there was a certain level of depth that I could get to when I consumed cannabis. I noticed like I was, instead of going one or two layers deep, I was thinking like three, four, five, six layers deep. And many times I would have the inverse of, I would want to take it for insomnia, but I would find myself like thinking about so many things, but it wasn't like unpleasurable. It was very pleasurable to really dive into like my psyche and really learn more about myself. And that was what kind of sustained my interest in cannabis was that it was allowing myself to dive deeper into my consciousness and really learn more about myself. Like, why did I have to always try to be the smartest person in the room? I never made the connection. It was because I was the smallest person and I was using that as a way to make myself appear bigger in front of other people. That's actually really interesting. So you did it for social reason for in the first, but then kind of spark an interest, right? It, it ignited a spark. Now, not only you experience your physical relaxation, but also you realize that it has some capability to heighten your awareness. And then that pique your interest further. And then you use that as a way to continue to explore the depth of your consciousness. Is that an accurate recap of what you just oh, said? Yes, very accurate. Okay, beautiful. So now, but the, this passion that you have, there's this curiosity, there's, you know, desire to self-actualize, to seek the truth of who you are. And then now my experience of you, whenever you speak about cannabis, it, it, 
this is a very niche from my perspective anyway a very niche interest very few people have the level of passion the excitement that you have whenever you talk about cannabis so now this is the from a tiny spark this is now a roaring fire right so describe to us why you are so passionate about cannabis cannabis such that you started three companies around cannabis so yeah so sh share with us a little bit Oh man, this is funny because um, I was actually listening to our old Flowmaster sessions and I realized in almost every share I bring up cannabis and I was like, man, I do really love it. I talk about it virtually every single time. And in the same way, like a teenager talks about drinking beer for the first time, it's like the best thing. But why do I have a passion for it? We talked about, I was talking about freestyling a little bit earlier and the flow state that you could get into. So I definitely was someone that lived in my head, I would say 99.99% of the time. In college, I started doing capoeira as well. My roommate was really good. He's like in uh, music videos and commercials. And actually he brought me into music videos and commercials too. But when we would train capoeira, there's a lot of music. There's a lot of ritual to capoeira. And for those that don't know, when you see capoeira being performed, it looks like people are dancing. And the reason why it looks like they're dancing is the Portuguese slave owners or the Brazilian slave owners would not let the slaves practice any martial arts. So they had to disguise it in a dance. And for me, like the music playing part, the singing, like I would really be shy about it. I wouldn't want to participate because I didn't know how to sing the songs that well, nor did I know how to play the instruments. And I would just want to go into what they call the hoda, which is the circle and do all the, the flips and different things like that. But I remember one day, me and Jack, uh, my roommate, we smoked a joint right before Capoeira class and he promised me like it would be more fun. And I had just thought previously when I consumed cannabis, I would just want to play video games and really not do too much physical stuff with my body. But that day, I just remember when they started playing the music, I wasn't like worried about like singing or how to play the instruments. I just like sang with them and really got out of my head and really started enjoying like the other parts of Capoeira like that were in my opinion, actually more important than the kicks and the flips. It's like kind of the community of singing together and utilizing the music, the speed of the music to control the tempo of the action within the circle. And like really being out of my head and in flow, I didn't understand at the time it was helping me tap into flow. I just thought, oh, Capoeira is more fun when you get high before going to class. And that's when I started really consuming cannabis before my workouts as well, and really trying to test utilizing cannabis in other parts of my life to see if it could help me tap into flow state, which is to help me really just focus on whatever it is that I'm doing and not thinking about my schoolwork, not thinking about are people listening to my really bad singing and really just enjoying life for the moment that I was in at the time. And that's really when I look back, like I said, I don't think I consciously understood that at the time. But when I look back and I think about, oh, what did it mean to me at the time? Oh, it was so I could really participate in Capoeira without thinking about do my flips look cool? Does my singing look whack? And my drum is my drumming off beat, which many times it was. Once I got into the groove, I would get back into yeah. beat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just having that feeling of being present. So the underlying thing I'm, I'm starting to grasp is not so much the cannabis itself. Rather, cannabis is a gateway to flow. Essentially, that's what I'm hearing. You, you started to explore what is this feeling that I have physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually around, around your life. And then the, the linchpin that actually unlocked this for you was 
cannabis. That's why you're so passionate about it. Is that accurate? Yeah. And it seems a little bit like polarizing to say this, it helps me get into flow and it helps also helps me get more analytical too. So in a Mm -hmm. weird way, they help like the two different sides of my brain, like really, I guess, maximize whatever it is. There's times when I want to problem solve and I'll consume cannabis and ruminate on it. And then there's other times when like I go to jujitsu and I'll consume cannabis because I want to get out of my mind. It's interesting that it's the same medicine, but could be used for such different reasons. And ultimately what's interesting is I started developing this more recently, which is more intentional cannabis consumption. In the past, it was more just like I was feeling overwhelmed with schoolwork or work and I would just consume cannabis to relax, or I would be feeling super stressed and I would consume cannabis to think about the problem. And it wasn't as intentional. So now I would say within the last like five or six years, it's been much more intentional. So before I consume the cannabis, I'll be saying, Hey, this is what I want to get out of it. Just we set intentions before this uh, podcast and really think about, okay, before inhaling this medicine, what do I want to get out of it? And sometimes it's, I just want to enjoy myself and eat food and have it taste really good. It doesn't always have to be this really deep thing, but the main point is to really just think about, okay, what do I want to get out of this? And then to use that as a guide for while you're on the journey. I love that. Okay. So let's actually geek out on the intention setting aspect of it. Do you have a specific way to set an intention or is it just pause? You think about it before you actually proceed with whatever it is that you do. Yeah, is you know, a, it's interesting. A ceremonial type thing that you do as a way to just ground yourself very quick before you, you know, consciously consume cannabis. Yeah. It's interesting. Like cannabis consumption, I believe has always been ritualistic, whether it's like friends gathering around a table and rolling a joint and talking and getting ready, or even passing it to the left-hand side in a circle and having a nice ritual. And for myself, usually what I do is my vaporizer takes about five minutes to heat up. So I'll turn on the vaporizer. I'll do a quick meditation. I really try to ground and center myself before and really think about what I want to get out of it. And with each inhalation, I'll really think about that intention I'll hold it at the top of my, uh, top of my skull. And then as I exhale, really try to sink into that intention. And I do that for as many hits that the machine will give me. And I find that to be both relaxing and allows me to really target in on the outcome that I want. And like I said, sometimes the outcome is I just want to have fun and relax. So like I said, it doesn't have to always be like this deep thing that, that I'm going after. I think it's interesting how you make a point to underline that multiple times that, hey, it doesn't always need to be this deep thing. But I think you're because the intention could be as a uh, quote unquote relax as me like, hey, I just wanted to have a good time, which is totally fine too. Mm-hmm. I want to do a quick share uh, with you real quick about there's this internet personality. His name is Jason Silva. I'm a big fan. He's a poet and it just allows things to flow through him, the, the words, the concepts, the idea that he brings up is just so beautiful. A lot of times when I watch Shots of Awe, I'm thinking like, wow, he does this in one shot when, with no edit and just beautiful words come out of his mouth. <clears throat> like, how does he do that? Two years ago, he was actually uh, at a Burning Man camp and I had an had a in-depth conversation with him about it. As you know me, I'm very curious and I was like, hey, finally, I get to actually have a conversation with him. What is his creative process? So he's very ritualistic, very intentional about how he creates his art. The way he does that, he would drink coffee 
to stimulate his brain mm -hmm. and then you use cannabis as a way to also helping to let go cognitively as well. And he's very scientific about it. There's a, there's a pen. I can't remember the name of it. Essentially only give you a fixed dose per breath. Mm -hmm. He would do that like two times and then he would then mm -hmm. get into that flow state. That's how he is able to scientifically for him control and how much stimulant, how much relaxant and, and so forth as a way to tap into his flow. Yeah, yeah. that's very interesting because I have another group. It's not a company, but we call it Canna Athlete, where we initially were helping athletes get off of opioids and onto cannabinoids as a way to manage their pain. But a lot of the athletes that we spoke to were actually utilizing cannabis before practice or even during games. We have several um, that have retired from the NFL that have talked about playing their best games while activated on cannabis. And we actually came up with different nomenclature for medication, intoxication, and for getting into flow state, we call it activation. And Jason Silva's routine is very similar to ours. We actually, we utilize cannabis. We also utilize caveman coffee or whatever that coffee has like MCT oil in it, whatever you want to call it. And then we also do uh, Kundalini breathing. And mm. we do that for about, we do breath of fire for anywhere for uh, two and a half to five minutes. And we really utilize that ritual before we train to get everyone um, not into just flow, but into group flow as well. And it's pretty interesting that Jason Silva's um, formula is similar to ours. And what's interesting actually CK is, the more and more that I show this to athletes, I'm starting to see some athletes want like a full cup of coffee. Some just want one puff. Some want to take a few huge bong rip. Like it's quite different in like the ratios of like coffee to cannabis to breathing. But what I'm starting to see is that having the ritual and having everyone do it at the same time, it really does help. It doesn't matter that we're taking different amounts each, but I do believe that getting yourself into the right mindset and having others helping create that container for flow state. We see it in the Friday flow masters as well. The collective flow is like a really wonderful place to be. And when you're doing jujitsu together or training together, it just adds like a second layer on top of just like, I always find training with people fun already, but when you could be doing it in active flow together, it's even more enjoyable. What have you come across? So that's actually going to that. To, number one, I, I love that you share your work with the athletes because that's something that I actually never thought you you did. So that's awesome. Let's actually go into that, right? Because I think it's one thing to talk about using cannabis as an activator for individual flow. It's another to do it in a professional setting. And then it's, it's another to do it for a, a group flow setting. So let's actually talk about group flow a little bit more. Can you dive deeper into... From your perspective, what is group flow? What is, how did you explain this phenomenon to uh, others who may not be as familiar as you are or we are to this idea of group flow? Uh, uh, a very good question, and I'll do my best to answer it. Flow state for the individual is when you're fully present with what you're doing. You're not thinking about past activities. You're not thinking about future things things that you have to do on your checklist and you're just very present with either your writing, your talking, whatever activity that you're doing. And many times when you're in individual flow, you might not notice the people around you. You might be like singing and dancing and not knowing that, hey, there's five other people studying around you and you're singing and dancing is like 
really ruining their ability to study. Now in group flow is, Hey, like maybe you get like the four or five other people that are studying to take a 15 minute break with you to sing and dance like you. And while you guys are singing and dancing, everyone's having a great time. And that's actually not the best analogy. Here's a better analogy, which is in capoeira. For those that don't know capoeira, it looks like breakdance fighting and, and those are completely unrehearsed. So if you're just in your own flow and just listening to the music and just doing whatever movements you want, it might look beautiful, but there's also a very good chance that you get kicked in the face or you kick the other person in the face because you're just in your own flow. But Because you're, you're not listening to your partner. Yes, right. yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So once you're in group flow with your partner, then you're watching him, he's watching you. And it's like this back and forth dance that you guys are doing together. And even in jujitsu or wrestling, like we have something called uh, flow rolling. And in flow rolling, instead of just going 100% at each other, you guys are doing techniques to each other. And the person is trying to counter the technique. And you're just flowing on the mat, like very like from offense to defense, offense to defense. And if you aren't in group flow, which many times we aren't, and most people like to be on offense more than on defense. So if you have two guys trying to do offense at the same time, then you will have a bear, like when someone watching, it'll look like they're both struggling. Whereas when they're in group flow, it'll just look like they're doing like somersaults and backwards somersaults together on the ground. It's like really beautiful to watch. So that's what we're going for with group flow is just making sure everyone's paying, paying attention to everyone else and also holding a container to keep everyone in that flow state. Meaning like, Hey, like when we're all in flow together, don't be looking down at your smartphone and answering text messages. We're all here to freestyle. We're all here to do jujitsu. We're all here to do calisthenics together and really being um, present with each other. Mm. Does that explain it? Yeah, it does. Actually, it brings up a few a few um, images in, in my mind as you were sharing. If you watch championship teams, the Bulls back in the the, the what is it the, the late nineties, it's like beautiful to watch. It's almost like synchronized swimming. How did Scottie Pippen or Michael Jordan pass this thing without even looking and they were able to catch and then just, wow, how did they do that? It's so beautiful. And I'm reflecting back on my experience with startups or with just beautiful design teams or engineering teams working together or even sales teams. It's as seamless as that. Hey, I'm passing you this. There's no egoic conflict and friction. You just kind of passing each other the ball and everything is seamless. Yeah, of course. Yes. And this type of like flow principle is just naturally happen. And it's really when you're in that environment, it's really fun. Things gets done super fast, super efficiently, super effectively. That in my mind is the whole, it's, it's the embodied experience of flow. So I love that this is the very conversation that you're bringing into different people's lives, organizations' lives as a way to, to help them activate that. Yeah. Oh man. I love that you brought it out of the sports context and back into the business context. Cause I think most people that think about flow when I was growing up, they called it being in the zone and it was always in context to sports. Like Michael Jordan would say, yeah, time slows down. The hoop looks like it enlarged by three times. And I just had all the time in the world to shoot that shot. Or Tiger Woods would say, yeah, like the hole just looks so big. And when I put it, it, I just, there was no way I could miss. And I would always think, man, whenever I played sports, I don't remember like the hoop getting bigger or time slowing down. But I did remember like one time I was giving a speech and after the presentation was over, like I, I didn't even 
I couldn't remember anything, but I just remember people telling me like how good the presentation was. And that's when I started going, oh, wait, I think I tapped into flow state during then and just didn't realize like you could tap into flow, not playing sports. And the interesting thing is uh, to bring it back to the work environment is like in freestyling, we know that we become judgmental of ourselves. Like it really breaks our ability to flow. And I've been part of five startups that had successful exits and a couple that didn't. And the group flow was definitely present in the five companies and not in the two that failed in that when we were brainstorming ideas or solutions, it's no one would take like any personal offense, be like, okay, that's a great idea. Why don't we augment it with this? And it was like really a sharing of information versus a defending of ideas, if that makes any sense. And just having that, it was just the energy levels were higher. People came into the office, like, like they had just drank caveman coffee, even though it didn't exist at that time. And just, it was so much more fun to work when everyone was in flow with each other versus trying to be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think it's the, the visual that I have in my mind is uh, imagine uh, atoms coming together. There's outer layers of you know, electrons, and then you have a, a proton in the middle and so forth. So in my mind, that's the ego coming together. So in my mind, group flow occurs more seamlessly when you're able to dissolve the outer shells and just come together based on ideas and be able to merge or, or, or diffuse based on what the situation needs. So that's in my, what's, what's what you share or conjure up in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree that visual is, I didn't think about how I would visualize it, but the way you described it is a good representation. If anyone's thinking of what is he talking about and how, how does it work? Yeah. And it applies for the individual. Like how do I articulate what's in my mind to the external, as well as two people coming together, working together, as well as a group now group of people coming together the more shells we have, it's more difficult to get to the core of what we're trying to communicate because now it becomes this egoic defense of let me prove my importance to the rest of the group. And let me focus on that or let me defend my idea to the rest of the group. Now, all of a sudden, there's a lot more layers to penetrate to really get to the core of what we're trying to communicate with each other. So then we can really heighten the, the creativity, having idea sex to really think about what's creative, what's new versus wasting energy on defending ourselves or prove ourselves to others. That's the way I think about it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I had noticed that I was usually employee. I purposely tried to be like one of the first 10 employees at the startups that I worked at. And I did notice about 125 people. Once we got to about 125 people, people didn't know everyone's names anymore. And there was like a shift in the culture. And later on, I learned about Dunbar's number, which is 150, which I believe is how many people you could have in your circle of, in your network where you're somewhat close to. And it started making sense to me. It's man, after 125 people, you have a variety of these egoic shells there that need to be removed in order to get back to group flow. And I think once you have like that number and that variety, maybe you start getting to a place where there's people that are so far apart that it's harder for them to break down the shells. And ultimately the startup vibe goes from, Hey, we're like a family working on a project to change the world 
to, like you said, people trying to defend their position to show their value and to make sure that when there's promotions that they're first in line for them. And that's ultimately like why I discovered I like being in a startup, like in a startup, you have to work much more closely together. You can't just use politicking to make up for your lack of work. Like when there's just 10 people, it's if you're not pulling your weight, it shows like very easily. And yeah, it's very interesting. And ultimately maybe organizations aren't meant to be above, you know, 125, 150 people because of that can't work in group flow together. Before we go down that rabbit hole, I want to pull this back to your personal life. If you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Now, cannabis is one of those topics that's still a little taboo, right? In our society. And then I don't just see a lot of people very proudly, very, very much of an evangelist of, of cannabis. So was there a journey for you to say, Hey, I'm a cannabis experimenter to, yeah, I'm, this is what I do. And then now to now you're evangelist, right? So yeah. can you share with us a little bit of, especially being Asian American, actually. So I'm curious to know your journey from of your experience and being uh, someone who's just experienced for the first time to now being an evangelist. Yeah. The being Asian part that really kind of messed with my mind because I knew that for my parents, no matter how much I explained to them that it was helpful, they were very disappointed that I would consume cannabis and they were very embarrassed by it. That was one of the things that my parents, when they would get mad, like it just kind of, it was like water off my back, to be honest. But when they were disappointed in me, that would like really crush me and really make me rethink what I was doing. And, but I had this belief that it was like really good for you. When I was working, I definitely wasn't an evangelist, but I went out on a sales call with my first sales manager and we had, we had just closed a deal with Oracle. And it was a data deal and it was a huge deal. And at that time, Oracle did have their campus in Redwood City, but they they still had a campus in San Francisco, which um, was where we were. And my boss was like, hey, Sabo, this is huge. This is the biggest deal we've ever done. Congratulations. Like, why don't we stop off at a dispensary? And I was like, really? And he goes, <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, it was the first time that someone other than like a peer was asking me to do cannabis and he was my sales manager and he was like my idol at the time because he was like super smooth with all like the lady employees and i was like oh man if he wants to smoke a joint maybe there are others and for since that time i i would slowly say different things like i would make cannabis references but using nomenclature that only another cannabis user would understand and i started noticing literally like everyone in senior management was at least open to cannabis or use cannabis. And I started like understanding like, hey, based on the commercials I saw, I thought cannabis was the choice of drugs for the derelicts and lazy people. But based on my experience working in tech, like the smartest product managers, the most creative CMOs, the hardest working CFOs, were all utilizing cannabis. And essentially, I went to the executives, um, a few of them at our company, and was I told them that I wanted to start a high-end vaporizer for white-collar cannabis consumers. And I ended up raising $350,000 just through word of mouth through their network. And that's when I realized, like, at least in California, where I live and in Silicon Valley, if I'm an evangelist for this, I'm actually just a person that's allowing people to really come out and tell the world how much they love cannabis. And now I can't believe, like, after seven years in the industry, it's 
talk to me talking about this stuff, it's no longer taboo because if, if someone has any issues with it, I could show them all the double blind research papers that have been done that have shown that the efficacy of this plant in all these different healing instances, and it virtually backs up all the stoner stories that we used to tell. And that's when I started realizing, oh, wow, all these anecdotal stories, while they are anecdotal, if you hear them enough, there must be something to them. And that's when I started realizing like, hey, by not being an evangelist, I'm actually, in my opinion, doing a disservice to the world. I have mm. the ability to talk about it in an intelligent mm. way where mm. I can allow even very data focused people to mm. look at like the information and maybe they won't start utilizing cannabis, but at least in their minds, they'll no longer demonize it. Thank you for, for saying that. I really appreciate it. So let me do a quick recap and then we can dive into some of the more curious questions about facing the stigma in the earlier days per se. Mm -hmm. Yeah, chair, you had an interesting encounter with a sales manager that who you respect. And then he said, Hey, let's go to a dispensary as if it was nothing because for him it was normal. And then you started to realize there's this underground thing that a lot of people that you actually respect in the different companies that you work in are also using cannabis for whatever reason, as a flow activator, as a relaxant, whatever it may be. And then that makes it okay to say, to come out of the quote unquote closet more and more. And then really realizing that this is something that is backed up by research, it's backed up by data, it's backed up by anecdotal evidence. And then now you're just um, walking database of different stories, different evidence and data that you can share with others about the power of cannabis. Is that correct? Yeah. I could see why you're an excellent coach. You listen extremely well and you distill down my extremely long story into a very succinct 30 second recap, but yes. <laughs> Thank you. So that's the outer side of things. That's the, the data driven. That's what's possible, but there's, I, I want you to dive into the inner journey as well. Because I would say as any pioneer, I think there's a phrase that says, how do you know someone's a pioneer? You look at the arrows on their back, right? So you are one of the pioneers in the cannabis industry. I think you started back in 2010, something like that, officially, professionally. Mm -hmm. So back then that was still taboo and even criminal, right? Back then. Can you share with us a little bit about the internal journey of the courage that it requires for you to actually come out of the closet and actually share this plan? Yeah, right now, especially very recently, I've been really talking about listening to my calling and following it. And when I think back and when you ask this question, it really did make me think, oh, wow, this actually, I'm not just starting to listen to my calling now. I was listening back then because there, my tech career was like taking off. I was the number one sales rep at every company that I worked at. And for those that don't know, if you're the number one sales rep at an early stage startup, you have more power than the CEO. In most cases, I was bringing in at least 50% of the revenue in the company. So when the CEO was like, did you get high at lunch? I'd be like, yeah, fire me. He couldn't. He'd be like, dude, if I fire this guy, 50% of the revenue is gone. So like I, I had a lot of confidence in myself that if I just stayed the course, I would be working, I would probably be running sales organizations at top tier startups and then eventually running my own software startup. But there was something about every day I came home from work, I would 
turn on my vaporizer right away. I would use a vaporizer. And after the fourth exit, like I started feeling like, Hey, I don't know if tech is the thing for me long-term. And I wasn't too sure what I wanted to do with my career. And my wife had seen that I bought over 150 vaporizers. That was like my hobby. It was just buying vaporizers and taking them apart. And I started realizing like, Hey, like all of these things are built with off the shelf parts. I'm a really good sales guy. If I could combine my knowledge of buying all these vaporizers, what's good, what's bad with my knowledge of cannabis, with my ability to articulate what I like and help people understand it, we could potentially start like the best vaporizer company um, this world has ever seen. And it was very tough early on. There was no industry. We would have to sell these things on the black market or we would have to advertise them for like tobacco only and hope people could read between the lines. But because cannabis had made such an impact in my life from helping me sleep, from helping me deal with anxiety, from helping me get present, from helping me be more empathetic with other people's problems, I did feel like, man, I benefited so much from this. If I could help other people see how they could utilize this plant in a positive way, not only could I put food on the table, but I would also feel fulfilled as well. And in parallel, there was actually a guy in my hometown that was selling vaporizers and I was helping him sell them on the side on a commission only basis. So I would make cold calls after work and I was helping him move anywhere from 15 to 20 grand a month. So there was already some idea that if I put more time into this, there would be success. But the biggest hurdle was just going, man, what would my family think if I did this full time? Now it just goes from, okay, every once in a while, Sabo comes home and he smells funny to, oh, whoa, this is what actually Sabo is going to be doing for a living. And how Asian parents are, they talk with other Asian parents and they love to brag about their kids. And I knew that that would be an issue for them. But at the same time, it was just like, after my wife was saying, dude, you obviously love cannabis, go into cannabis. Once she said that, it just stuck in like my body. And like, I just had feelings of, I would call it anxiety right now. I just always think of it. It's like when you're doing something, if your head's telling you to do something, but your heart's not telling, or it's telling you that's the wrong thing. Like you feel this like discomfort. So I would always have this discomfort until I thought about the cannabis space. And then when I would think about cannabis, like all of that would melt away. Then I was like, all right, dude, this is what I got to do. Cause every time I think about doing something else, I get this weird feeling. And when I think about cannabis, it goes away. And that's when I started listening more to my body versus trying to override everything with, with my mind. There's so much there for any entrepreneurs that's listening to this. I want to underline a few things. It's not Sable didn't just like, oh, I feel great about it. Let me just jump into this thing. As in trusting your gut, trusting your intuition. Y yes, you did that, but you also gather a lot of data points uh, along the way. One, you had 150 vaporizers. You took them apart. You actually look at, quote unquote, the market, right? You did extensive research and you look at the different engineering parts. You, you look at the pricing and it, it, intuitively, you didn't maybe perhaps consciously wanted to do that in a scientific way, but intuitively that's what you did. You also listen to your wife, right? Hey, your yeah. wife pointed out something. You also have enough self-awareness to just trust, Hey, these are the benefits that I've gotten personally. What's possible if I pursue this to help others experience what I have experienced. You also have gone out and actually without building your own product, 
pitch someone else's product and say, Hey, I generated 15, 20 grand a month pitching someone else's product. I can probably have a higher margin if I pitch my own product. So these are all data points that you collected along the way. And the final threshold was around the family part. I want to dive into that a little bit more because I think culturally, I think that's a worthwhile topic. Then you decided to say, let me do this full time. So you didn't just jump from, Hey, I enjoyed this to boom. Let me invest my nest egg into <laughs> building a, a, a high-end vaporizer. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 And I, I'm, I'm glad that you retold and resummarized because I realized it did seem like I just woke up one day with an epiphany, like I'm going to do this. And it was definitely over like a eight to 10 month period of, as you said, doing informal research, gathering enough data points, and then finally feeling like confident enough, especially with the support of my wife, that this is something that I should absolutely pursue. Yeah, that's such a blessing because oftentimes I would say even especially uh, entrepreneurs with a significant others or kids, this is a huge concern for them because you're taking additional risks. But in your case, you have a, not only very blessed to have a supportive wife, but also you are already well equipped with the sales skills, with the communication skills. So that is not something that you need to augment or amplify or bring somebody else in. You already have that. So now you just need to do the research, focus on the data, make the widget. And then you already have connections with different people, right? Because since you've been selling already. So effectively, just customer results mechanism. You already have customers. You already know the results they want. You just need to build a new mechanism, correct? Yeah. And the way you describe it sounds like I almost deliberately did all these steps. But yeah, they just happened by accident. And to be honest, it's once I got inspired by it, I just started doing the reading, started doing the selling, started just informally collecting information until there was like that moment in my head where, it's, okay, that's enough information. I'm confident enough. Let's go for this. Let's try to figure out how to raise money. Oh, so you actually raised money right away. We started off with seed capital from, I'm not going to mention them, but uh, one of the companies that I worked for, the senior management team was like all about high end vaporizers for like white collar executives. They were like my first funders for this company. And I actually, it was, I didn't even have to raise a, a formal round. I just told them what I wanted to do. And they all plunked down like 50K each. And we had a 350K to play with right away. That's awesome. That's what you call a founder market product fit without much effort. But would you say that's more of a, what's the word I'm looking for? A rare event or was it just through serendipity or through intentional design that this, this 350, this ease, this flow happened? It's interesting that when I think about it, it all happened by chance or serendipitously. But when I think a little bit more deeply about it, I do think that it was very deliberate. At that time in my head, I, I didn't say I'm going to do A, B, and C, and this is what's going to happen. But in my head, I was thinking, man, if I could get like these rich dudes to invest in me, that would be great. And I think I just started subtly doing different things like during like during net, like during company events, instead of leaving, I would always just stay longer till it was just the executives. And then I would bring out like the best weed that they've never seen in their life and just kind of start cozying up to them. So I definitely was doing things to make sure like I was in their sphere of influence. 
and just getting them to really believe and trust in me that I wasn't just a sales guy, but I had knowledge in other areas and that if they gave me money, they could trust that I would do the right things with it. And ultimately we ended up utilizing engineers that everyone also knew. So I think that there were also other mechanisms that would allow them to feel more secure because I was working with other people that they had also worked with in the past too, that were a bit more senior than I was that would give them the confidence that I wouldn't just go Dan Bilzerian on them and spend all this money on girls and extravagant <laughs> parties and stuff like that. But yeah, in many ways, I think of it as like luck, like the stars just aligned. And then in other ways, I'm like, wait a second, I was actually, whether I was conscious or subconscious of it, like there was some like direction I was trying to lead them towards. Cause yeah, prior to that, the company events, like the second we could leave, I would always leave. And then after I smoked a joint with my um, sales manager, I was like, you know what, if I spend a little bit more time with senior management, instead of them just looking at my numbers and going, oh, Sabo's awesome. Although maybe get to know me and put some more trust in me to do things outside of just sales. Mm, I love that. I think that's actually a worthy topic to talk about too. What is trust? How to cultivate trust? And how do you engineer trust? And engineering in a way such, such that it's natural, not from an inauthentic point of view, but, but just you know, intentional. How do you intentionally cultivate trust? Can you share with us a little bit more about that? Because in my mind, trust is the currency ultimately. Entrepreneurship ultimately comes down to is the people business. Yeah. So you need to trust me enough to hand me your hard earned cash as well as I need to trust you enough to know that what you're sharing with me, the problem that you have, the solutions that you want is what you're looking for. That way actually there's an energetic fit, energetic resonance. And that is the flow of currency going back and forth. So yeah. share with us a little bit about trust from your perspective, because you share something that you did. But just going one layer deeper, if you don't mind. Yeah. And yeah, I would say trust even beyond just the root of entrepreneurship, the root of every relationship and being a man of your word. I know it sounds a bit cliche. I, I was someone growing up through college, through my early work career, like I could just tell like little harmless lies without even second guessing. If someone said, how close are you? I'd be like, oh, one freeway exit away when I'm five freeway exits away. And these types of lies, like they seem harmless. It's like one, one exit or five exits. What does that matter? I'll be at your house in like within 10 minutes anyway. But ultimately it's if someone catches you in one of those, they don't trust you as much. I can't remember which book I read. It might've been like the four agreements or something like that by Don Miguel Ruiz, but they really talked about being a person of your word and really sticking to it. When it came to like forecasting, I would have other sales reps like forecast larger numbers than me. And then I would be like, oh shit, I'm not going to be the number one sales rep anymore. Should I just boost up my, like my numbers for the review? But I just felt like if this stuff doesn't come in, I'm going to have like egg on my face. Like I was always like very transparent. And the flip side is part of it, part of my transparency also had to do with some of my insecurity, which was like, there was like, I started working in the corporate world at the age of 27 after dropping out of law school. So I felt like I had a lot of time to make up. And I also knew like I looked young for my age. So maybe people didn't think I was like 27 years old working an entry level job. But like I was so insecure that I would always ask people or double check, am I doing this right? Or, or if someone was like, like, 
how big is this deal going to be? Is it going to be, how well did that call go? And I would notice I would be on calls with my other reps that didn't go well, but they would be like, oh, it was great. The prospect wants to invite us back for another meeting. And I'd be like, that's weird. So like when they would ask me if it went well, I'd be like, I don't think so. Like he, when I asked him about if he wants another meeting, you know, he was making a bunch of excuses and part of it, like I said, like I was trying to be very transparent. And the other times I think I was like really nervous of saying something and giving someone the wrong expectations that would bite me in the back. And ultimately to answer your question, it's just being honest, being a man of your word or being a person of your word. And really, I think for me, the thing that as a people pleaser, like I always want to say, yes, I could do it to people. And what I found was telling people no, and just letting them know it's not that I don't want to do it. And it's nothing personal against you. It's just that honestly, I can't, or for whatever reason has allowed me to build that trust with people that like, if you give me money, I'm not just going to be selling you on the idea that I'm going to turn it into all of this stuff. Or if you're asking me like, Sabo, do you know how to do this? I'm not going to tell you, I know how to do something if I don't. And I think when they see consistent behavior like that over time, they'll be like, okay, like maybe he doesn't have all of the pieces in place to start a company. But if we give Sabo these two resources, I trust him enough where with these two resources leading him, like he, he can start a startup. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but hopefully it, it answered what you were asking. No, this is exactly what I'm trying to get deeper as well, because trust is such a intangible, right? We're getting really meta here, really conceptual. And trust is one of those things that you can feel it. Uh, it's data driven as well as energetically driven. So a huge part of this component, what I'm hearing you say is being someone, a person of your word that honors your own word, right? Uh, do what you say you're going to do by the time that you say you do it. And a second component of it is do it consistently because if you just do it once in a while, you have that up and down, then you yeah. don't, people can't count on you. So I also love the fact that you emphasize on not only your capability, but also your limitations as well. What it takes to actually have your spine, your sovereignty and say, no, I can't do it because blah, 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 whatever. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. That's great. Okay. Let's go back to the culture part of it. So yeah. how's the relationship with the parents now? Oh, it's, I've always had a very good relationship with my parents. And despite that kind of hiccup now, my parents consume cannabis, my in-laws consume cannabis. We actually like at Thanksgiving, there's actually no more alcohol. And as you can imagine, there's less family conflict when there's less alcohol and yeah, everyone enjoys cannabis. Now it's completely normalized in our families. And sometimes we have teenagers or older tween type kids. And because we, we don't overly glorify what cannabis does and we don't demonize it in the house. It's just another thing in the house. No one pays attention to it. And, and that's the way I want to, that's the way I like it where we're not like trying to overly glorify, like this is the end all be all to fix any problem that you have, nor is it this thing that you drink once and all of a sudden you're shooting heroin. It's just something if you use it correctly, it's fine. And yeah, so now there's absolutely no friction. And as a matter of fact, it's the preference of choice of my in-laws and parents. Yeah, no, that's really great. But you go, you went from, I am, I'm really embarrassed. My son is doing this to, this is not normal. So what happened in the middle? 
<laughs> what's the arc? How do yeah. you able to enroll them to take that journey with you, shall we say? You know, it's interesting because when they saw Sanjay Gupta on CNN, my father-in-law is a pretty well-renowned chemist. My father, who passed away a few months ago, he did traditional Chinese medicine. So when he saw Sanjay Gupta talking about it, that definitely started changing their views on cannabis. I've been in Business Insider, Fox Business, Forbes. Uh, I've been in a ton of publications. So once they started seeing the work that we were doing is actually being picked up by not just High Times Magazine or these other trade magazines and actually mainstream publications that they read, their friends read. They started going, wow, not only is this they came to accept it, even though that they weren't like excited about it. Now they're huge proponents of it. And they also want to well, you know, well, help before you go into a huge proponent. Okay. So they saw Sanjay Gupta, Gupta and then what happened before you go into again, a giant leap from, you know, to the yeah. So once they saw Sanjay Gupta talk about it, they're like, oh, wow, another Asian doctor, the chief medical advisor at CNN is saying positive things. And he's going around to all these houses. So they saw people that had seizures. They saw people with fibromyalgia. They saw all these really strong medical benefits. And when it came to them trying it out, I just said, hey, you saw the CNN special. Why don't you give it a try? And the first time like my dad tried it, he sat in the massage chair. I turned it on for him. And then he goes, Sabo, I, I, I feel. And then I go, you feel what? And then he just kept going, Sabo, I feel. And he had trouble expressing his actual feeling, but he just kept on saying, I feel. And I think that's the first time I ever heard my dad say, I feel versus I think, you know, and I think that really, yeah, there was something about that experience that was different for him. He's not someone that consumed or consumed cannabis every day. None of them are, but when they come over and they're having a meal or it's the weekend, they will use a vape pen to relax. And it's interesting with alcohol. One of the things that I heard them say was alcohol is really great at helping them tune out. Like if there's problems, just drink alcohol. You don't have to think about it. Have a good time no, to escape. Yeah. Yeah. And then with cannabis, it helps them tune in. And mm -hmm. sometimes tuning in isn't pleasurable, but it is what they need to tune in on. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And that was like the way they went from, okay, I'm okay with Sabo doing this. Okay. Wait, there's a person I really respect on CNN saying this is okay. And then mm -hmm. they had the real world experience themselves and felt the relaxation and the calmness that um, mm -hmm. comes with utilizing cannabis. And then, yeah. And then I think seeing their son in publications that they could brag to their peer group about all of a sudden it was like, okay, like you said, it's like pioneers get arrows shot in their back. They also, I also know that given that I was an Asian in cannabis, I was also getting press that would normally be reserved for people that maybe had longer track records than myself. But because I was a minority in a controversial polarizing industry, I got a lot of press focused on me for being outspoken as well. I love that. So I'm asking all these questions, not necessarily because I am passionate about cannabis, but I actually now see the psilocybin or similar things that's essentially mirroring what transpired in cannabis as well. And I have personally experienced a lot of benefits in the use of, you know, conscious use of psychedelics 
so I'm a huge champion and advocate for the <clears throat> normalization of, uh, of these type of plants or entheogens or things like that. So from someone who has been through that journey in the cannabis industry, now watching psilocybin and all these other MDMA type of psychedelics coming online, what's your take on that? And let's do a little bit of a future uh, forward-looking uh, thinking here. Yeah. They always said cannabis is a gateway drug. And I used to hate that comment and that statement. Now that I am also in the world of entheogens and psychedelics, I absolutely do see it as a gateway drug to other plant medicines that help you go even deeper than cannabis. And the interesting thing about cannabis and why I believe so many people love it, even though everyone uses it for very different reasons, it is because it has a lot of homeostatic properties. So if you're too tired, you could consume cannabis. It'll perk you up. If you're too wired and you need to calm down, you could consume the very same strain and it'll calm you down. And ultimately the consciousness exploration with cannabis gets only so deep and, but it did pique the curiosity of other natural plant medicines that we can consume that could give us different experiences. And yeah, I feel like my time in the cannabis space was preparation for this next phase of whatever is going to happen with this psychedelic revolution. I work with a few individuals that do retreats in Jamaica or in Asia or South America. I also know people that have locations in North America, one in Oakland that has full cooperation with Oakland PD as well. And I do believe that this this new phase that we're going in where people's consciousness could be changed in, we've seen it in one, one session. It's really exciting. It's really exciting to think about people that have had a lifetime of a certain pattern, being able to break those patterns, being aware of that pattern so that they could work on it. It's what gets me excited when I wake up in the morning thinking about, yeah, everything that I learned about cannabis, it really translates to this. I already had a natural kind of the same way I was curious about cannabis. I was curious about psilocybin, LSD, iboga, ayahuasca, DMT. And yeah, I do feel like if this was like school, cannabis was like college and psychedelics is like going to grad school. And I'm very excited about getting a postgraduate degree. Now, what I'm going to do in a psychedelic space, I'm not too sure. I could support shamans. I could support other entrepreneurs. I could help build community, but it's definitely a space where I see myself um, being very active. Yeah. So in terms of, again, mirroring what happened, what transpired in the cannabis space, what do you see as the trajectory of the, the, the demands and the different use of psychedelics? Yeah. So unlike cannabis, where there's recreational use, I do not see recreational psychedelic use ever being legalized. I think that in the context of the way we want people to benefit from it, utilizing them in a more process driven setting. I think is essential to people getting the most out of it versus just going into the woods with your friends and eating a couple grams. One of the other things that I think we should be very careful about is everyone was so excited about the green rush about making money that when we looked at all the legislation and all the things that were being written, 
we had an idea that only those that had like eight figure or nine figure backing would be the winners of the cannabis space, but we didn't care. We just said, F it. At least people aren't going to jail. And now we're seeing the cannabis industry starting to organize just like every other industry, which is there's going to be four or five main players and all the really great boutique shops that were run by passion-driven, compassion-driven entrepreneurs no longer exist. They all work for the big five, the big six. And we're starting to see the products become more generic. And I don't want to see that happen in the psychedelic realm. I don't want to see only those that could raise the most money become the people that have the brands that people recognize. I want to see the people that have been doing like the work with maps all this time. The people that have been helping Johns Hopkins University for the last 15, 20 years. I want to see these people at the top. I don't want to see the professional fundraisers dominate the industry like they've done in the cannabis industry. And I'm not afraid to say that. I mean, the people listening, if you're getting bothered by it, like I'm talking about you guys, you guys are the problem in the cannabis industry, why it's so much more expensive now that it's legal, that it's, it's not affordable by your patients anymore. And if that happens in the psychedelic realm, that'll be like just the saddest thing because just think about this. Cannabis is more accessible now, but it's more expensive. When it was illegal, it was cheaper. That makes absolutely zero sense. And this is what happens when greedy people get into businesses without the right intention. And with cannabis, even though it kills me, like I could live with that. But man, if this happens to the psychedelic space, that would really crush me because I do feel like entheogens and psychedelics are the one thing that could really change people's minds and really open them up to different possibilities. But if that's controlled by people that don't want people to have these possibilities, then, you know, that kind of makes me a little fearful. But if you look at the natural cycle, we're now getting super heady. So just, uh, I want to get back to the hearts in a, in a moment, <laughs> but, but just humor my intellectual curiosity for a moment. But if you look at a natural business cycle, you have essentially the artisans that people full of passion, mission, and core values because they believe in it. And then outside money investment comes in and then it's in consolidation. Right now you have bigger and bigger conglomerates because they have the gravitas of you know, building infrastructure, hiring the right talent, having the right people and all these other things. So then you can scale the the kind of products and service and quote unquote impact that they want to make so in my mind naturally this is the business cycle that happens and you could see that from my point of view in different industries all over one may say hey this is making the business or the industry worse but one may also say the long tail effect right so yes there are some blockbusters that everyone knows at the same time you can find music movie books that has that long tail effect does that make sense yeah yeah and i think in a more kind of i think balanced view you're absolutely right a lot of the laws that were passed it more or less set it up so that if you were an artisan you had no chance to succeed so the threshold to entry is way too high no one you need tons of capital to get in therefore is basically blocks everyone else were coming in. Okay. Yeah. So basically what happened was the larger companies lowballed or introduced pricing that was never before seen in the industry 
bled money, caused all the artisans to not be able to compete. And some of these larger guys bled themselves out too and could oh, never I, recover from that strategy. I yeah. see. So like predatory so, pricing is what you're essentially what you're saying. Exactly. Predatory pricing. And they were the only ones that could do it because they had raised so much capital. And that was actually what people had predicted was like, hey, given Prop 64 and the way that it's written, only those that raise eight or nine figures will be able to play this game. And those that don't are going to have a really tough time. And on top of that, they brought in some techniques that work really good in other industries, which is, hey, if you could bring a price point that the others can't compete with, that's a great way to buy market share. And ultimately, they shot themselves in the foot because they couldn't run a sustainable business. So it ended up actually hurting the entire industry. I don't know if you looked at any of the papers, but the largest brands, the men's, the Cresco's, the canopies of the world, like their earnings are all super down. And because they trained the public to be used to these prices, when they tried to bring the prices back up, there was a lot of pushback. And then on top of that, taxes are 30%, which is why the black market is now six times bigger mm. than it was prior to legalization. That's interesting. Okay, so, so these are some of the, the things that what not to do when it comes to the development of psychedelics. But I, I, I didn't quite understand why the concern that people have of companies like Compass and or Campus, I don't remember how, how yeah. you say that, but they raised a lot of venture capital and people are, are really critical of that. Now I see it because I can see the mirror side of in, in the cannabis industry. Okay, great. So with all of that, with your experience in cannabis, with your hope and aspiration in the world of psychedelics, what do you see as the sort of the area of opportunities or you're still developing your thesis around this still? I think that the area opportunity for myself is bridging those two worlds together. That's what I did in the cannabis industry was, especially like in the Asian American communities was to educate and really inform the people in those communities about the possibilities with the sacred plant. And when I look at the psychedelic space, the people that are raising capital can't really talk as deeply about how the medicine really helps. And then we have the shamans that are very deep in their expertise of the medicine, but might be so deep that when they communicate to your standard person, it, it may sound like way too intense for them, or I can't drink a whole cup of ayahuasca. This sounds crazy. So potentially the education area, I mentioned to you, I, I want to get into coaching myself. And in that coaching, I do see plant medicines as part of my toolkit. Like I would love to help people in as many ways as I can that don't have access to it. But if you're closer to me in proximity, or you have access to it, I would love to utilize that as one of the modalities to help people with whatever issues that they want me to help them with. Uh, but ultimately, like if I had it my way, CK, and I believe I could have it my way, is I'm building out a small little compound on a farm where I would love to be able to have a large, I don't know, four to 5,000 square foot area with individual living rooms, but a big community room where we can do all sorts of different things, sound baths, rich, uh, shamanic rituals, mobility classes, 
yoga classes and yeah have like my own little retreat center is yeah if i had my dream that that's where i would want to be is have like a retreat center and then have different shamans with different expertise come in and educate inform and build community i love that thank the thank, thank you for sharing i think the education portion uh, giving your superpower of communication and in sales in enrollment and listening actually we didn't talk about listening but and, and then your awareness of this energetic resonance, right? I think that is, uh, that is a really important part, especially being Asian American myself. I see one of the biggest problem of our times is whatever you call it, neurotic thoughts, stress, PTSD, or anxiousness or overwhelm, right? This is the disease of our time in my mind, not disease, maybe troubling symptoms of our time. So how do we actually do that? And then the, the traditional way of going about it, talk therapy or pharmaceuticals or, you know, meditation, these are all beautiful tools. Don't get me wrong. I'm not debating any of them, but at the same time, I feel like the world of psychedelics is such a powerful and effective tool that we're now have just begun to explore scientifically and research wise the proper usage of it or the proper possibilities of it. So I think communicating the benefits as well as the methods is a very, very important thing. Cause uh, as you said earlier, the researchers, the shamans, the doctors, the PhDs, they can't communicate in ways that is relatable to regular people and then regular users, they can communicate the, the, the scientific rigor that you are able to communicate. So I think being that bridge between the layman as well as the experts is a very important role. So yeah, I, I applaud you for honing in on that. And the retreat center, great idea. Actually, a lot of the smart entrepreneurs that I know, their dreams are all along similar path of building their own retreat center to bring people to do this type of work. So it's, it's, it's awesome. It's funny. It's the PTSD of being an entrepreneur and wanting to have a retreat center for other entrepreneurs. <laughs> There's a phrase in the coaching world, or we teach what we need most. So we started companies because we wanted it, not necessarily because of the opportunity, at least the way that's the way I, I, I have seen that's people who are successful because they wanted something, they want to solve their own pain. So they built their own widget. To, to do that. When you said that statement, it, it hit me in the pit of my stomach. Oh shit. What I teach is what I need most. Like it is really, I, when I was working out like my niche statement for what type of coach I wanted to be, it was to help people who have a side hustle, turn it into a profitable business while still maintaining high quality of life. And it is absolutely 100% what I need and what I built for myself too. And, you know, what I needed to feel like my time on this earth was well spent. And hopefully when I'm in my golden years, instead of clinging on to the last few seconds of my dear life, I'll feel like, man, I lived a really awesome life. I'm ready to go to the next one. If I look at your career trajectory, I want to get a little meta and look at your hero's journey again. You have lived many different lives, right? You were a stuntman, a background dancer, professionally for Bone Thugs and Harmony, Mortal Kombat, Bush and the Grinch. You were a sales, you know, top revenue generating salesperson in data.com, SalesFactor, E2Open, Yammer. And now you're CEO of multiple 
cannabis startups. And now you're also reinventing yourself as a coach, getting into the entheogen space. So one can say you live many different lives. So let's talk about the concept of reinvention. If you look back on your life trajectory, can you share with us what it, when you were in reinventing yourself, did it seem jarring? Was it clear black and white moment? Like, and for you to say, I'm reinventing myself newly, or is it just more gradual, like the roller coaster ride? Yeah, going through it, definitely. <clears throat> it seemed more kind of gradual, but when I think back to it, the, I could always think to like pivotal moments. Like you said, like uh, the first time I, I, I used a bong versus a joint, like I just knew cannabis was going to be in my life for a very long time. And for my different sales careers or my different careers in general, I, I knew being a stuntman wasn't going to be my long-term thing. I just knew that it was a great way to meet like attractive girls and be on Hollywood sets. So that was my main thing. Leaving law school to go to high tech, I had to make that decision in three days because I would still get 90% of my tuition back. And if I made it in a week after, I would only get 50% of my tuition back. So that was a lot of money. And so I had to think about that very quickly. But yeah, what's interesting is with each transition, there definitely was, while it was exciting, I did, it also did a company with some sadness of leaving this other version of myself behind. And many times that other version, I didn't like as much as the newer version, but it was like, all right, Sabo, the would-be attorney, that guy's not going to exist anymore. Or Sabo, the, I very much saw myself as like the golden child at these tech startups. Cause obviously if I'm in charge of revenue and these startups are all going public, it's probably because of me. So like, I very much was like, oh dude, I think by the fourth, like after the third exit, the fourth company, I was like, the reason you should hire me is that I will allow you guys to exit successfully. I was like getting that confident in my ability when I was going to end that and be a CEO. That was definitely like, I needed like the support of my wife. I needed the support of my family. I needed like a bunch of people telling me like Asian American studies major could run a company. I had just thought I've never taken a business class. Okay. I could sell stuff. I was selling stuff that I didn't fully understand security things. I just knew the words to say, and I was good at listening and like regurgitating back to the person. But yeah, it was such a tough decision, especially the, um, becoming a CEO because my daughter was also born that year. So I was like very worried about the financial security of my family on top of that. And I really needed a really good support system to to reinforce to me what was in me already, which was the ability to lead, the ability to be strategic, the ability to put together a roadmap. And I had been through that process five times already, which, you know, through osmosis should have made me feel confident. But I think because I knew I was a Asian American studies major, never took a business class. I just thought, oh, I'm just like a smooth talking guy that could sell stuff. But when it comes to running a company, that's for someone with an MBA. So at some point, you had to let your old identity die and you had you know go through that grieving process and then also birthing a new identity that is step into being a founder CEO. Is that correct? Yes. And I was also the youngest, not just the youngest sibling in my family, but the youngest cousin on my father's side and the youngest cousin on my mother's side. And 
they have six siblings each. So there's roughly a hundred cousins. I was always used to being the baby. Like I never told anybody to do anything. Everyone always told me what to do. So right. I think going from the guy that basically any responsibility that none of my other cousins wanted to do, it would eventually be me to a guy that would be disseminating the orders or dictating the orders was very different. And even as a sales guy, or even as a sales manager, I think I was very good at worrying about myself and just making sure I was good versus everyone else was good. And as a sales manager, I would always pick one or two really good sales guys and really focus on them to try to make our number versus spending time with the whole team and making sure the whole team was good. So I had tons of doubt when it came to running a company. I just knew like if I had to sell it myself, like worst case scenario is if I had to sell the vapes individually, like I could do that. But yeah, my ability to lead and to be organized to do all those things, I had no confidence at all. Okay, so that was the journey. What did it actually take for you to reinvent yourself from sales guy, had no confidence to actually be a leader to small shots as a CEO founder? Can you just walk uh, the reinvention process, please? Yeah, um, as silly as it sounds, I would just ask myself, what would Bruce Lee do in this circumstance? And really just channel my inner Bruce Lee and draw confidence from that area. And like sometimes like thinking, what would Bruce Lee do? He would kick these people's asses. Obviously that's not a good uh, response. So I'd have to imagine, okay, Bruce Lee's not the right archetype. Okay. What would Steve Jobs do in this instance? And a lot of it was, I guess, fake it till you make it is a maybe like a good description in that I would try a bunch of things that would make me uncomfortable. I would see a little bit of success that would reaffirm like, hey, I, I could do this. And then the next time I would push it a little bit further and then see if I got positive results and do that repeatedly, which is a continually push myself out of my comfort zone, whether it was the way I spoke to employees, whether it was the way I pitched, whether it was the way I put together our roadmap, just really try and keep pushing myself out of my comfort zone so that I would grow. Like I, I would find myself like always wanting to do like sales calls instead of like accounting or customer support or any of these other things. And I realized like that was my way of distracting myself from learning all the other things that would actually make me a good CEO. So yeah, I guess to answer your question, it was just doing a few uncomfortable things every week to prove to myself that I could still keep learning new things and then building that confidence to really start stepping into the role as a leader with or without the fact that I'm paying someone's paycheck, which was also a little bit of a, a area that I got into, which was, I was like, oh, I think these people only listen to me because I pay their paycheck. They don't really actually respect me. They only respect me because I pay their paycheck. So there was a bunch of these different things and, and things that I had to push myself through before I got comfortable running the companies. Yeah. Being an entrepreneur in my mind, is one of the it's one of the, the most transformative path. If you're interested in, in self-actualization and transformation, I think being an entrepreneur is a really great path because as you said, you need to really confront your own capabilities and your own resolve, as well as your relationship with other relationship with money, your relationship in creating value, all these things, right? It's all wrapped up into one. So hence why I'm a huge fan of entrepreneur as a transformational path. Mm. 
same as in marriage, right? These are all beautiful paths because you, the truth reveals itself when you face these different types of adversities along the way. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I didn't look at it that way, but once you vocalized it, that really resonated with me about entrepreneurship as a kind of like rites of passage of like really learning about yourself and your limitations. Yeah. So leaning to discomfort that's being talked about a lot, especially in the entrepreneurial world, the hustle life and the dream is free the hustle is whole soul separately. So that's well understood, but I want to also bring into the part of recovery. So can you share with us a little bit about when you are pushing into discomfort as a way to tap into flow or tap into what you're capable of as a way to grow your spiritual spine, as a way to develop your confidence in yourself. All these are leaning to discomfort. Awesome. Great. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, can you talk a little bit about the yin yang? Sorry, the, 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 the yin side of things, the, the renewal, the recovery as a way to really help you stay grounded and harmonious within yourself. Can you talk about that more? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those things that I would always tell people like, you need to rest. You need to rest to be the best version of yourself. Yet I was always the guy that would take pride in only sleeping three to four hours a night and burning the midnight oil. And when it started really catching up to me was when my second daughter was born. I started noticing like when I would get sick, I would be sick for two to three weeks at a time, like bedridden and really needing like recovery. And I started noticing I was very disconnected from my body. I didn't have any granularity in my awareness if I was just tired, if I was exhausted, if I was injured. And I would always just keep pushing through like all those different feelings. And this kind of coincided five years ago when my wife started experimenting with psychedelics herself. And she pulled me back into it for self-discovery. And during one of our psilocybin journeys, there was, I just had communication with the entity that really was like, Hey, Sabo, you used to be so connected with your body. You used to do martial arts all the time. Like you really were aware of what was going on. Now you're just this checkbox driven guy. You're just driving this vehicle and redlining it. You're not putting oil changes into it when it needs oil changes. You're just shifting at like 8,000 RPMs. And this car is like going to break down like sooner than later if you keep driving it that way you did. And that's when I started like really thinking, wow, am I getting sick for this long because I'm just not taking care of my body and somehow my body is like holding it together until it just can't hold it together. And that's when I started being much more proactive about my health. And I think that was about the time I was like in my late thirties. So I was really noticing during jujitsu, even when I wasn't training hard, like I was like sore for three days. I had thought, Oh, only when I train hard, I'm sore for three days. And even on the late days, I was like, wait, my body's not recovering as quickly. And just, and also in parallel, my co-host from my podcast, he did somatica training. And so he was talking about recognizing the feelings of your body. So it was a perfect storm of all of these things happening that really got me to stop telling people to be healthy and stop telling other people to practice self-care and doing it myself. And now every once in a while, I'll just take a, like a 90 minute to two hour nap in the middle of the day if my body's telling me to and really trying to and I think with COVID, it's really afforded me this option of working when I when my body's ready to work. 
and resting when my body needs to rest. And I know that doesn't, not everyone has that opportunity, but if you do, I do believe that's something that you'll really benefit from. And I just find myself with way less stress. And when I'm able to do the things with high energy, it's instead of working eight hours, I could usually get that stuff done in half the time and the quality of work is higher also. Yeah. Everything you said, 100% agree. I think that the core, so for those of you listening, the core of what we're articulating here is developing that awareness of what's happening in your mind, your body, your heart, and spirit, right? Because for me, the highest creativity, the highest flow, the highest innovative ideas comes in when I'm deeply integrated, when I'm deeply aware of what's happening. And when I'm off physically, mentally, emotionally, that is drawing my free energy towards those things, whether or not I'm aware or not. So the more I'm aware, the more I can actually align all these things such that I can just be my highest self and channel whatever the creative energy towards what this problem is solving, this solution I'm building. So everything that you said is really beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that, that we could talk about. Let's actually talk about Flowmaster a bit. Okay. Yeah. So you and I, we met through this group called Flowmasters. Can you maybe share a little bit about what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we still be going through the mission statement, but Flowmasters is a weekly group of people that come together to express themselves authentically over typically hip hop or lo-fi beats. And it's a great way to practice your ability to rhyme, but it's not about rhyming. It's not about being a dope rapper. It's about tapping into your inner self and being able to express your authentic truth. And that is something that really resonates with me and something that I discovered maybe four months ago and I've done on a weekly basis and I just feel very alive. It's the same feelings that I get when I'm really present on and really happy and just it's the way I describe it is Toastmasters taught me to be a more polished speaker. Flowmasters taught me to be a more honest speaker. I love that. Thank you. Now that's uh, beautifully said. Anything else around why you're so passionate about it? Because it's one of those things that it's maybe the same level of passion you have for cannabis I see in Flowmasters for you. Yeah. So, so why is being an honest speaker important for you? Yes. Okay. For me, especially, especially we talked about honesty and trust or trust at the basis is being honest. And if you're not aware when you're fooling yourself, then it's, you could be dishonest without even knowing because you're not aware of what you're going through. And with Flowmasters, I never thought of myself as someone that held back when I communicated. Because usually when I communicate, you could see me get emotional and I'm like really into it and stuff. What I noticed with Flowmasters is especially early on, there would be like things that I wanted to say. And then I would have a little voice that'd be like, Sabo, you're a CEO. You can't say that. Or a voice would be like, you're a dad. You can't say that. Or another voice would be like, you're a husband. You shouldn't say that. And these weren't things that were like really bad to say, but- I think in the context of I'm a dad, so I probably shouldn't say these juvenile things or I'm a husband, so I shouldn't rap about like girls I used to date or I'm an entrepreneur. I shouldn't 
I should keep my topics at a certain level versus sometimes I like to talk about farting and stuff like that. So these were all things that I became very aware of. And I wasn't so aware of them in my normal life, like how I would speak when I was interviewed versus how I would speak with my wife versus how I would speak with my kids versus how I would speak with my friends. I always felt like I was the same person and I am like 98% the same person, but that 2% that was different, I wasn't really aware of them until I started doing flow masters. Then with flow masters, I started realizing, oh shit, the reason why I can't flow is because I'm switching behind to all these personalities like almost automatically in my normal life. But when I have to freestyle and I have to be 100% loose and even like 1% hesitation prevents you from doing that, like it gave me hyper awareness of when I'm switching from Sabo the entrepreneur to Sabo the dad to Sabo the husband to Sabo the friend. And having that awareness, like you said, if you don't have the awareness, then you can't work on it. And then now that I'm aware of that, it's like my ability to be free, my ability to talk about things in a way that instead of, expecting someone to be like, oh, Sabo is like a smart cannabis guy. It's just, no, I just want to express myself authentically. And that's what makes me feel good. And ironically, that's when my messaging seemed to connect with more people. And that's when I started going, oh, being a prepared speaker and having all these topics uh, that could expand people's mind is great. But when you tell your own personal story, honestly, authentically, just like what Bruce Lee said, like doing fancy kicks, doing all these fancy movement, that's easy. Speaking honestly, that's tough. And that's when I started realizing what Bruce actually meant in that interview and why I've been so attached with this concept of honest expression. Thank you for that. I step into my public speaking effort when I was in graduate school because I just had such a restraint on myself. So even if I have to say something simple like happy birthday, I, it's so nice to meet you, I have to actually literally write the exact script out before I feel actually comfortable. I'll be like shaking and <laughs> that, right? So luckily for me, Toastmaster was a tremendous training and then it was landmark. It was the path that I took to develop myself personally and professionally. So I've been on this path of seeking my truth, what it is, and then able to speak it. And one thing that I hear from people to say, just speak more authentically. And yes, I get it. I want that. But how the F do you actually do that? It's know thyself is this very simplistic message to say to people, speak honestly and then truthfully and authentically. At the same time, the work that I actually take for us from to go from here to here is, uh, is one of the most challenging things that I've come across. And I'm very thankful for me to come across flow masters, because as you said, it gives me that hyper awareness to make the unconscious to the conscious, to actually speak and speak freely. Um, that's has been tremendous. And then you, my friend has been a beautiful example of what's possible when you're actually in flow. So I actually looked at you and say, Sabo is doing this, therefore I can do it too. Ah, uh, thank you. And that's the best part is many of the people that I facilitate, like they saw me do flow masters the very first week. And then I convinced them to do flow masters the second week. And part of me is, dude, man, I can't believe I literally just started this thing. And here I am helping him facilitate that. But that's why I do believe once you unlock that it's people would always say, speak your authentic truth. And like you, I was like, 
I've been in search for that for so long. I feel like I'm doing that. And then when I showed up at Flowmasters and I found myself hesitating, yeah, then I started becoming hyper aware of when I don't speak my truth. And yeah, the concept of group flow there where everyone is setting a container to allow everyone to be vulnerable and to experiment with expressing their truth and becoming aware of when they're not doing that. It's a beautiful thing. And that's why I think the people that are brave enough to show up really are the ones that really benefit from that. And for someone like myself who thought I was already hyper aware to have even more granularity to find that there's like levels of flow. It's like now I have, I know I'm not a great rapper, but I have like full comfort of just whether I'm on beat or off beat, I'll just keep going. And last week I found myself not just doing that, but experimenting with like my tone and my pitch of like excited or like a little bit more mad during like my flows. So now I'm starting to see, oh, okay, I'm already comfortable expressing the words, but the next level for me is expressing more emotion with those words. And then I just see this as like a, like an infinite game that we could just keep getting better at and allowing ourselves to really express ourselves more authentically and more truthfully. And I believe when you do that, your soul just feels like nourished. Okay, I expressed myself, people heard me. I'm not frustrated, angry anymore. I could just spend the rest of the day in like this blissful state. Yeah, thank you for that, for sure. Uh, as we're speaking, a quote from, out of the tip of my tongue. Now I forgot. The guy who wrote that man's uh, search for meaning mm -hmm. said between stimulus res and response, there's a space and in that space lies our growth and, and meaning. So effectively in Flowmaster, we're able to essentially stretch out time to actually be hyper aware of all the in-between spaces between stimulus and response, and then pick and choose which attribute which emotions, which words we want to use as a way to articulate how we are ex experiencing ourselves in this very moment. So making it uh, the unconscious conscious. And in that hyper awareness, we train ourselves to let go of things that don't surface as well as honing in on, on the precision that we, and the nuance and the subtleties of all, what we intend to communicate first and foremost for ourselves, and second to others. And that's the beauty of, in my mind, of things like flow masters or psychedelics or, or, or even podcasting, because it, this, whatever we're saying is created in the moment. And that's why I love everything that we've been doing so far for the last two hours. Yeah. I can't believe two hours have gone by. We've, we've definitely been in flow. Like my wife came in, she's like, you still doing this? And I, I looked at the time, I was like, whoa, we've been here for a while, but that's that I, I have no time constraints. I was just saying, I can't believe how much, how fast time has flown by. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of that, I, I do want to be super respectful of, you know, your, your time, your family time. So I wanted to just take a moment and just really acknowledge you for sharing yourself so authentically, so beautifully in your story, your journey of going from being a stuntman to a backup dancer, to the number one sales in startups, to now CEO, to now coaching to others. You can clearly see for me, a search for truth, a search for your ability to actually make a difference in people's lives. 
So really appreciate how you show up on this podcast and, and sharing your truth so beautifully. Thank you, Sable, for, for being here and, and share your story with, with my audience. Yeah, I thank you for the opportunity. And like, it takes two to tango. And what's really awesome about this is you asked me some questions that really required me to do Google searches into parts of my past that I haven't really thought about. And ultimately, like, that's why I love group flow. It's the other person can take what you give, process it, ask another question that gets you to go deeper back into yourself. And I really admire like the way you can do that as a listener and as a coach, because like the feeling that you gave me was like, I was like, oh man, he heard, I felt like, oh man, he asked me like a, a question that should only take one or two minutes to answer. And I went for a full 10 minutes, like, did I just bore him or did I go on all these different tangents? But like when you like repeated it back to me and made me feel like, oh, I wasn't telling this story that went all these different directions. It was actually quite focused. It just took me a lot of words to get it out. It did make me feel like, okay, shit, it was like a very strong message and, and that you heard me. And then when you asked me the second question, then I felt, okay, I could go deep with the answer again. And yeah, maybe sometimes I went through some other rat holes that like went off course, but more or less, you got me to really think deeply about what it is it, why is it that I do these things? Why was I always searching for truth? How is that going to benefit me? How is that going to benefit those around me? So I really appreciate the last two hours that we spent as well. You're so very welcome. And thank you for being an embodiment of that, being a noble warrior. I yes. I appreciate that we are on this journey together. Thank you so much.